The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. And today's episode is episode number 253. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, you should see down in the lower right-hand corner a little red button so that you can subscribe to this video and I mean, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, we had a, a nice testimonial come in a couple weeks ago about a, a gentleman who listened to the podcast and learned about Bobby Newman, the interventionist who is a friend and has been interviewed and also is an advertiser for this podcast. And the gentleman was able to, um, he hired Bobby and Bobby was able to get his son into treatment. So we hope we're offering value. It's nice to hear that we ab- actually did possibly help save a life. So that's, that's a good thing. But when you subscribe and give us a good review, or when you give our videos a thumbs up, then Google puts us in front of people. And that way we can offer our message of hope to other people. Today we're doing a little bit more on what we've been calling the Purdue Sackler panels. This is kind of a different take on it because um, we interviewed a filmmaker quite a while ago and one of the um, people in a couple of the people that were in her film, she did a documentary called Overdosed. And um, this while we've been talking a lot about the series Dope Sick, um, Dope Sick is a dramatized series about Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. Overdosed is a documentary that features real life, real live people, real life people who um, experience this whole opioid pandemic exactly how Purdue and the Sacklers rolled it out. So this is a bit of a different take on that. We're not going to talk about the legal situation as it stands now, because I understand it's ongoing, but we are going to talk to people who have experienced this. The first person that's going to be, we're going to be talking to today is Mary Sue Connolly. She's a film editor, filmmaker, and video journalist. She, um, has worked on feature documentaries, as well as TV segments, news clips, ads, promos, and online content. She is an Irish filmmaker and former editor-producer for CNN and CBS. The film that she produced is Overdosed, and Overdosed highlights the troubling turmoil of the deadly American opioid crisis as it unfolds in the small town of Petersburg in rural West Virginia, the state hardest hit by this epidemic. Through interviews with former drug dealers, overprescribing doctors, DEA agents, and local community members, Mary Sue uncovers a shocking narrative of the pharmaceutical industry's intentional plan, get that word, intentional plan, to target opioid sales to an impoverished, underserved community and the resulting addiction, prison, and overdose cycles of its citizens. Now, we're also going to be talking to a young woman who is featured in Overdosed, and her name is Bree McGulty. And Bree also served as a producer on the film. She grew up in a hometown torn apart by 
drugs, and forced to survive by any means necessary, her story offers one of hope. She transformed her life after serving five years in federal prison, much of it in solitary confinement. She weaves the narrative as she tours the decimated region, blending her personal story of addiction and destitution with that of the rest of the town's victims. We're going to talk to Bree today. I'm excited to do that. Also, we're going to be talking to a young man who is featured in the film. His name is Kevin Bauman. Bowman. He has a history of addiction and being in and out of prison and literally had a spiritual revolution and made a vow to himself to change his life. And he did. He's now working and living in Huntington, married with a son and daughter about with a daughter about to arrive any day. So that's kind of cool. Actually, by the time this airs, she will have arrived, I'm sure. Um, he, while, she, while the film Overdose was being made, he was trying to set up a recovery house in Martinsburg, West Virginia. He got shut down by local officials, so he left and went to Huntington, and um, he and Bree know each other. So without further ado, let's talk to some of the real-life people affected by Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, and um, yeah, let's talk to them and hear their story because it's all true. So Mary Sue Connolly mm-hmm. and Bree and Kevin, Bree McAulty and Kevin, is it Bauman or Bowman? Bauman. Bauman. Thank you all for being on the podcast today. As I, as I said in the intro, and as I said when we were chatting before, this idea of doing a panel about Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family came about because of the series Dope Sick. When I watched it, I knew a lot about it, but not as much as I saw in the series. But I remembered um, Mary Sue and I asked you like right away if you wanted to be on one of the panels because you you researched this, you, you know. So mm. tell us how your background, like your, your film Overdosed, which is about the Purdue, Purdue dumping opioids into West Virginia. Um, tell us how that came about. Yeah, well, um, it's really nice to be doing this, actually, because it's, it's five years since I first met Bree, um, since I first started Overdosed. So, um, and a lot has changed in the last five years. And I remember vividly, like going across the mountains to meet down in West Virginia five years ago, desperate to get answers as to why so many young West Virginians were dying of overdoses. Um, what led me down to West Virginia was I had a nephew who lived there. He lived in Morgantown and he went to university at WVU and he passed um, just over five years ago now and I lost him to an overdose. Um, and my whole world just went black at that point. Uh, I was in shock, I was in grief. I felt the shame and guilt that I couldn't have done more to help him. And, you know, I, I needed to know how this amazing young person with his whole life ahead of him, you know, how it had to end this way and why it ended this way. You know, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Like I knew immediately that like, it shouldn't have happened. Like this doesn't fit, you know? Um, So, you know, after his passing in, in the Morgantown, West Virginia, I just committed to myself. I was like, I need to find out how this happened all. You know, I just need to know and I need to investigate. And at that time, five years ago, there were some great journalists doing uh, work on this topic. Eric Ayer in Charleston, West Virginia, and Chris McGreal, who was working for The Guardian. And I'm sure there were many more, but, um, but there was still so little 
being talked about in media. And I work in media, you know, I work for mainstream media. And even, and I lived in New York, you know, how the hell didn't I know what was happening in West Virginia, in Ohio, in New Hampshire, in Virginia? Like it was, it just wasn't making the headlines. You know, it might've been a little blurb here or there, but it wasn't making the headlines. And then I lose my nephew and it's like the biggest thing in my life, in my life came crashing down. And I just felt like, how didn't I know? So I, I just needed the world to know, you know, I just needed the world to know. And I, you know, and then I met Brie because I, I had trouble kind of like getting people to talk to me, you know, because like it's a very touchy subject and um, especially with drug dealers and, and, you know, and drug users. And um, in Morgantown, West Virginia, where Pauly passed, uh, there was a lot of big drug dealers rolling through town and they you know, would go from city to city and they would switch their phones within each other. They had these burner phones, but they kept the same number. And one guy would come from Detroit and the, the other guy would go to New York and they were doing this ring, you know, and, and they were really people you didn't want to mess with. And everybody in Morgantown that knew Polly or that was involved in any kind of pills or any kind of drug using was really not willing to talk. You know, it was just like too dangerous for them to go on the record and they couldn't do it. And then I met Brie on a, on a chat and um, she was telling me her story. And I was just blown away by what happened to her and her life story. And I was also just blown away by the fact that she wasn't afraid to talk. She's like, I'll go on camera. I'll tell you what I know. I did this, I did that. She was just you know, invincible. She just was like, I, I need to tell this too. She, both of us were kind of burning to tell this story, I feel like. And, and, that, and then five years ago, I drove across the mountains. I think I was coming from Elkins uh, in a snowstorm in January to meet Bree, who I thought was this drug dealing felon <laughs> that was going <laughs> to rob my handbag. And, um, and then I, I knock on the door for granddad's house and she's just this like lovely, amazing person with this incredible honesty about her that really wants this story to be told as much as I did. So that's when I knew I had to set the the film in um, Moorfield in Petersburg, West Virginia, where Brie was living. And then I, I met Kevin through Brie, which was another miracle. <laughs> so I feel really fortunate about that. That's awesome. I, I can't thank you enough for going down that road and telling the story. And I'm sure it was not it was not easy for you, but it, I think it opened the door to a lot more of a look at what actually happened there. Bree, tell us your story and, and what, what brought you to the point where you were even willing to talk to Mary Sue about it? Cause I get that it could be a little bit dangerous for you to do that. Yeah. Um, well, to be honest, if, if I had met her years before, it never would have happened, but I was kind of caught at this crossroads because I had just gotten out of federal prison and I was at this crossroads of wanting to help people and not really knowing if I could do anything. Like I just felt helpless. And then, you know, being devastated like day after day, like you eventually, like I was just outraged by everything constantly. And then it was no secret. Like I was just, I was to the point where it was like obsessive and uh, I pushed so many people away and I ended up meeting Mary Sue that way because I, I was making these videos about you know babies born addicted to, to drugs and all the overdoses and you know the doctors and the fentanyl and, and I was just like I said I was outraged by it all because um well I, I've spent 
years in federal prison and like I basically became an adult in there and I was totally unprepared to come home to the mess that I was coming home to a different person from who I was before and Brie how did you get started on opioids how did that happen for you I really I, I was not an opioid user my father was and that's kind of what introduced me to all that because he had friends that was actually going to Dr. Massey and I had friends that was going to Dr. Massey and I didn't really understand the depth of it like the politics and all that until Mary Sue was involved and she did wonderful work with all of that and kind of got to the bottom of it and then we finally understood what was actually happening to West Virginia and how it all began and I I just um the, the point of no return for me of wanting to do something was, well, you know, I got out, I was actually sleeping on a closed in porch when I got out of prison. Um, I didn't have any kind of counseling to help me readjust. I know a lot of people face that, but I just felt like super sensitive and vulnerable to everything. And then like within a couple of weeks, I was already holding my best friend's hand who was, who died of complications from drugs. And, uh, I don't know. It was just, it was like it was meant to happen with Mary Sue. And, and the thing is, I was so unprepared to go on camera, but I was so eager to be heard because I was like this, like I'm holding on to this. This is the chance that I got to make a difference. And to be honest, whenever the first clip aired, because I believed in it so much, I was like, there's people out there that are just like me that are feeling like helpless and hopeless and, and just need, they need to, they need to be heard too. And I was going to be like a vessel for that. But then when that first clip aired on Facebook and the negative backlash that we got, like the death threats, even it, it was it was horrifying. Like it, I lost friends over it and it just fueled that outrage in me. And I just was pushing everybody away. I did not trust anybody. Mary Sue, I actually shut Mary Sue out for a while. Like it was just it, it was rough. <laughs> I think I remember alive. that. I think I remember that. And I and I understand it. I don't yeah. think I I understand it. Like, I don't fault you for that because I, I can see how, yeah, I can see how if, if that was the reaction you got. Yeah, you it, it was bad. And, and I was still, like I said, I was still having a, a hard time readjusting to reality coming out of prison and, and, and just, shoo, it was like, it was bad timing, but I knew it was meant to happen. So I just went with it. And then, you know, years down the road, and I've actually met Beth Macy. I actually rallied with her at the Department of Justice in D.C. I rallied with her and Danny Strong, and and it was amazing. You know, these people, they really believe in what they're doing, and and, and actually, I'm still in contact with her some. You know, she wants to speak with me some more, but, you know, we'll see where that goes. Um, right now, you know, I, I stand with Mary Sue. I trust her with my life, and I feel like if anything's going to happen, it's going to be through her because she's uncut. She's raw. You know, she'll tell it like it is, and she doesn't ask for a penny in return. You know, she's really, she's a wonderful person and I'm glad to know her. That's awesome. I, I cannot validate you enough, Brie, for being willing to confront this whole thing and to stand up and tell the story and tell it like it is because it's not pretty. And you are walking right into the teeth of money and people wanting to make money. Do you know? And that's, yeah. that's not easy and it's dangerous. And I, I, I really appreciate you st- stepping up and, and telling everything that you told in the film and, and now I appreciate you doing that. I really do. Oh, thank you. So 
Kevin, how did you figure into this? How did you meet Mary Sue or did you know Bree? What was your story? Um, I grew up in Moorfield in Petersburg. Uh, my family's uh, really good friends and closely involved with Bree. Um, I've known Bree pretty much my whole life for the most part, as much as I can remember. Um, I was, Brie was the, Brie was the dealer. I was the junkie. I mean, that, that's just the, the truth of it. I, I could never, uh, there's, there's a saying in, in the rooms in AA and NA that a monkey can't sell bananas. Um, and that was, you know, that was me. Um, I could never hold on to anything long enough to sell. Um, I went, uh, my, my addiction took a really quick bad turn. I got incarcerated when I was 17 um, in and out for the, my entire twenties. Um, I stayed in contact with Bree just through Facebook and everything. Once I'd got out, um, and I was working in recovery, um, helping to facilitate, uh, men's, um, halfway house kind of transitional living program. And Bree introduced me to Mary Sue and they asked me if I'd be interested in talking to them and answering a few questions. And of course, I mean, I'm always willing to tell my story and I'm always willing to do anything that'll bring any type of attention or light to what's going on in our state and just in the world in general. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I think that's huge. You did, um, you did some jail time too. Like, talk just a little bit about your addiction and how you got clean and that part of it. Um, I, uh, I, I started using when I was, my, my addiction took a really fast takeoff. Um, I started, uh, smoking weed and drinking when I was 15. Um, and by the time I was 16, I was smoking crack, crystal meth, just doing crazy things. Um, I overdosed on, uh, some type of pill. I don't know what it was. I still don't know what it was. I don't remember. I just found it in my parents' medicine cabinet and took it. Um, when I was 17 and then I went to West, uh, West Virginia, home for youth when I was 17. Um, I got out, went into the military, screwed that up, uh, went to prison, uh, in 2005, got out, went to college, screwed that up because of my addiction. Um, went back to prison, 
got out again in 2009, moved to Florida in Jacksonville, screwed that up, went back to prison again in 2012. And that was the last time that I used. Um, at the end, I was just, I was ready for anything to be different. Um, I had the gift of desperation. I was, I was ready to die in order to not use again. I didn't believe in God, but I was begging anything to just let me die because I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing. My mother was laying in the hospital um, and I wasn't going to visit her because I couldn't use while I was there. Um, so I was just kind of trashing her house and stealing from her, stealing her pills, stealing her checks. And it all kind of caught up with me on uh, March 5th, 2012. And I remember when uh, I heard the knock on the door and I looked out the window and I saw it was a cop like, always before that was my cue and that's when I would take off and try to run and try to get away. And that time, like I just really kind of felt this just sense of relief because it was over. Um, when I went in to prison that time, um, like I said, I was ready to die to, to, to stop. And I kind of went in with the mentality that I was going to do whatever I could while I was locked up to make sure that it didn't happen anymore. And if it didn't work, then I could kill myself later. Um, that, that's really where I was. Um, I developed a relationship with God and I, I, I developed a relationship with people to, through Alcoholics Anonymous and through Narcotics Anonymous while I was in there. Um, I did a program that's in West Virginia called the RSAT program under a guy named Stuart Strong, um, a genius of a man. And uh, I got out. He helped me find my way into a transitional living program to get out. And uh, that's the program that I ended up working for for four years and doing that. And that just kind of really just set the momentum for everything since then. That's awesome. And you're, you're closing in on 10 years clean and sober. So very, 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 very well done. Thank you. I know it's not easy and, and you have a great family now. And we talked about that. Mm -hmm. So that, and, an, yeah. and, an, and a new little baby coming. Yep. So that's, that's exciting. Just out of curiosity, and you mentioned that your father and your uncle did you say we're doing opioids? You said your dad, right? Yeah, my dad and several friends of his and uncles, so, about everybody that I knew as an adult. Okay. Did it ever, I'm asking you and Kevin kind of the same question, uh, before you met Mary Sue, did it ever kind of occur to you guys that maybe West Virginia was being targeted in some way, that this seemed like maybe it was a bigger problem? I don't know. I don't know whether, I don't know. Tell me. Well. To be honest, I mean, I was incarcerated in federal prison, so I was in there with women from all over the country, outside of the country, et cetera, and they, I mean, basically, all of them came from a background of drugs or drug dealing, drug use, whatever, okay. so I didn't really, I, honestly, I had no idea. Okay. I'm not even going to lie. I knew that it was bad, but I thought it was just bad everywhere. Honestly, I thought that it was worse in other places because it was bigger cities. Right. I had no, I had no idea. Okay. Kevin? Did you have any idea? Uh, when, I, when I was in it, no. Like, yeah. I never really thought anything about it. Um, since since then, you know, I live in Huntington, West Virginia now. Mm -hmm. And we get a lot that comes in from Detroit here. And Detroit guys and, and people that bring in, they, they actually call Huntington, Huntington. Um, hmm. Because that's where they bring it to. That that's It's an easy sell. It's a quick flip. It's a quick turnaround. Easy money. Right. Um, so, so yeah, in that sense, I, I don't really know so much as far as like the, the pharmaceutical industry and that kind of stuff. Um, I never really thought about it too much. 
Right. And Mary Sue, yeah. that's where you come in because you pulled the string, so to speak, and found McKesson, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. And McKesson's uh-huh. not a manufacturer, they are a distributor for Purdue. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's who was responsible for flooding West Virginia, them and Cardinal Health and Amerisource Bergen. But it was interesting, uh, I, coincidental, coincidentally, after I started shooting the film, I realized that the local drugstore that was supplying the pills um, for Dr. Massey, 99% of his pills came from the local drugstore and they were getting their pills from McKesson. Um, and they were under investigation by the DEA for a long time because, you know, McKesson was flooding this part of West Virginia with like just millions of pills into these small towns with like hundreds of people, you know. Uh, so that's why there was so much supply. You know, it was just flooded, <laughs> you know, and nobody, you're supposed to call, get flagged for, you know, they're supposed to report suspicious orders to pharmacies and they never did that. And that's why the DEA pursued them. And funnily enough, the Petersburg, West Virginia and Warfields was kind of the birthplace of the, the DEA's lawsuit against McKesson, you know, to shut that down, to shut that operation down. Um, I just thought it's interesting, like we and, and Kevin kind of didn't know. And I think I, nobody really knew at the time, because, you know, you're in the middle of it, you know, this normal to you. To live like that, you know, everyone is doing pills, you know, it's just kind of, you figure like this is happening everywhere. But that's why maybe you took an outsider for me to come and say, no, this is not, (laughs) this is not normal. Like, this is not happening everywhere. Like, this is way, way, way crazy. Like, you know, so, um, and I think when I first started filming and we were getting the backlash, it was because people did feel like a sense of guilt or their own, like, they didn't realize that they were being victimized, that they were being targeted. You know, right. they didn't realize that it wasn't their fault. They thought like, oh, no, you know, I took, I did actually swallow the pill. You know, I'm the one to blame. Not realizing that there's such a massive supply problem. So um, I think that's why we got a bit of backlash. And I think it's changed now that people realize that, wait, now this, you know, this it wasn't my fault. Like, right. how come this whole town is flooded with narcotics, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. This isn't this isn't just Bree and Kevin, you know, local dealer and local addict. This is a reputable, I use that word very um yeah, advisedly, a reputable company actually targeting the state of West Virginia and other states like it with painkillers, with opioids. And I you know, I I also have to just have to say, Mary Sue, and I, I I'm pretty sure I've validated you before, but you you have the ability there to confront evil, and that's really what this is. There is there's no two ways about it. There is evil there. There is intentional, just wanting to make money, not caring how it's done not caring whether Bree's father and his friends become addicted, not caring whether Kevin becomes addicted, just simply wanting to make money at it. And if, you know, if Bree will deal, hey, great. You know, that just helps us, McKesson and Purdue Pharma make money. And it's not, I don't think it's easy for a lot of people to confront that fact. And I applaud your willingness to do that because that's the truth of the matter. Oh, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, 
just when you think you've seen it all, you see more. And I got to the point where I was just like, oh my God, like, it, you know, you just can't believe that they just saw these states as disposable people. Yep. You know, yep. and they're living in New York City, and I was living in New York City. And they're like going to like the Met Gala or the like, you know, to these museums, like drinking champagne with Mayor Bloomberg and having a great old time. And yep. like whole states and counties and all these young people are dying. You know, parents in grief, like Kevin saying that he just didn't want to live anymore. But there was so much pain. And I'm like, how can these people live with themselves? But like they just saw these states as a marketplace. Yep. And it's really disturbing. Yeah. It's very disturbing. I mean, you don't like to think that that type of thing goes on in this country and in this day and age, but it did. Yeah. And it, it actually isn't over. What, what are you seeing? Are you continuing to research this, Mary Sue? Are you still looking into this area? And if so, what are you seeing? Yeah, well, you know, I was looking into there was a, a big $26 billion settlement, you know, with um, the three big drug distributors, including McKesson, and also with Johnson & Johnson, who are who are on the hook for $5 billion. Um, So I'm just trying to see how that pans out. You know, different states and counties have joined in on that. Um, I really want to see justice being served for them also. I mean, Purdue are the ones that created the lie and, you know, maintained that this was not an addictive substance, you know, which is just wicked. But then there were so many other players, you know, that were willing to run with that also. You know, and, and they also need to be held accountable. And, you know, and they're still, you know, they're, they're not bankrupt. They're not facing bankruptcy like, like Purdue mm. is. I mean, they're okay. actually still working with the government and still distributing, you know, pills or vaccines or whatever. They're just, you know, still on government contracts. You know, J&J is doing its, its uh, COVID vaccine. So I'm like, how can these companies that have proven over and over again to, to just have no moral whatsoever and to have done so much harm still be in the business of, and the of, emails the emails that were calling us pillbillies and you know it was just they it was definitely intentional mm -hmm. there's no question about it what what's really crazy to me with all of it is that you know people like Bree go go to prison for selling pills and the what was it I, I remember reading a news article there a month or two ago about the Sacklers being um not being liable anymore um for for any further lawsuits any further settlements or anything like that so the, that that's what's really I, I i don't think about it too much like it took someone like mary sue to do this because i mean in recovery we're taught you know to own your own stuff and to look at the parts you play so when i look at my addiction i don't look at who caused it other than what part did I play in it? So it was really, it was really good for someone like Mary to step in and take a look at it because I wouldn't have. Yep. Yep. And, and I think you make a really, really good point, but you know, yes. Okay. You're responsible for your own condition and Brie, you're responsible for your own condition and you two have taken responsibility for your own lives and turned them around. But there are higher powers at work here. And that's what Mary Sue looked at in overdosed with the, you know, drug distributors like McKesson and with Dr. Massey, who he's working for the state of West Virginia, right? Yeah. I, I, I can't, I, that just like, I, I'm sorry. I have a problem with that. Um, yeah. 
and 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 those people do need to be held accountable and um you guys are you're rock stars in my opinion for confronting and facing everything that you had to and being where you are today and also being willing to be part of Mary Sue's project on overdose because I mean, you lived it, Brie. You got death threats, you know, because people uh, people didn't understand that. No, West Virginia is being targeted here. It's not, you yeah. know, Brie's not the bad guy. Okay. Well, sorry. Now that's and okay. The th- and the thing is, is when when you like you like like what Kevin and I did, and all of us did, we went and we we told our, our darkest secrets, you know, for the world to see and human nature i guess kind of reduces us to the things that we speak about on camera and it was instantly like oh you're a drug dealer you're the reason that all this is happening oh you're an addict you know you're part of the reason this is happening so it became like an us against them like we were just making everybody look bad from our fault when in reality like that that was just not the intention at all you know we just we wanted everybody held accountable and the reason why we're rallying now is because of what Kevin was talking about, how they were not no longer liable. We we're asking the Department of Justice to throw that out because how could they possibly, you know, file for bankruptcy? They're you know they're they're sitting on billions and billions of dollars. And right now there there are judges that are throwing out that, and they're trying to get it to where they can be held li- reliable and people can uh, hold them accountable for you know what they've done to them personally. Yeah. Take legal well, action. You are you are absolutely correct. And I think that when there's a series like over um Dope Sick that is really shining a light on the people responsible for this, and a film like Overdosed that also sheds the light on the people that are responsible for this, I hope that Overdosed kind of like gets rekindled. Do you know what I mean? And starts being shown again because Dope Sick is done. That was an eight part miniseries and that's done now. But Overdose needs to be brought back into the limelight, if you will, and needs to be focused on again because you were ahead of the game in terms of making this film. And mm-hmm. you, you really told it like it is. And um, I can't thank you enough for your work Kevin, I can't thank you enough for being willing to speak out in the film. And Bree, I can't thank you enough for being willing to speak out in the film because that light needs to be shed on on those who are really responsible for, you know, causing this whole pandemic in the country. And it ain't you two, okay? I'm just saying. Um, any last words that you guys would like to share? Um, I want to I wanna invite you to do that because... Um, you're all rock stars in my book. I'm just going to say. Oh, thank you, Joni. I just, I just want to say that, like, you know, there wouldn't have been any film. It would have just been me going crazy on my own <laughs> if I didn't have people who were willing to sit in front of a camera and tell me the things that Bree and Kevin and, and Jenny and Cammy and Kelly and all the other people I spoke to. You know, like, everyone always asked me, how did you get these people to talk to you? <laughs> you know, like, did you have to pull their teeth out or something? And no, they just were like friggin' ready to sit down there and lay it all out. And like the stories, you know, that I heard. And, and there's so much other footage that's not in the film. And it's just all so amazing. And it's so good. And, you know, I wish, I hope I have done them justice because there's just so much there. And there's so much more that we can say. And there's so much more that Kevin can say, you know. And I'd love to hear more from them. <laughs> I, you know, I want to, like, I would love the opportunity to go back and like do all this other footage and 
but I'm so grateful that Dokesik got um, so much attention, you know, like it didn't just die away and this opioid epidemic didn't just kind of, you know, disappear from people's minds. So it was really important that that was such a hit. I'm, I'm so grateful for that, you know, that it, it away, that it's in people's awareness now and, and they can understand it, you know, the extent of this problem. And then thank you also, Joni, for all the work you've been doing <laughs> on this topic. You're welcome. You're welcome. Bree, thank you. Any last words? Well, I just want to, you know, anybody that's out there listening, I just want to say, you know, it, it gets rough, but you just can't give up. You know, Kevin and I and well, everybody in the film and everybody that's probably been on the show, you know, we've been there, we've done that and we've we've overcome just about anything you can think of. So uh, thank you for having us and really appreciate you guys. Absolutely. Kevin, any last words? Yeah. Um, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's uh, I don't work in recovery anymore. Um, okay. it's, it's just, uh, it's just an avocation to me now instead of a vocation. And, you know, the, the, the whole documentary and being a part of that and still being able to see things that Mary or Bree posts and, you know, do take part in things like this. It just reminds me of something that I was a part of when I did it. And, uh, you know, just like Bree said, if you're listening to this and you're still going through it or you got a loved one that's going through it, just keep pushing. Um, reach out to somebody, you know, in recovery, cause that's what we're here for. I wouldn't have made it out if, you know, Rocky Meadows or Stuart Strong or Justin Ponton wasn't there giving me a hand up when I was trying to change my life. Yep. Thank you all so much. Well, there you have it. If you have watched the series Dope Sick on Hulu, then you might want to find the film Overdosed uh, by Mary Sue Connolly and see the real story of Bree and Kevin and the real people living in small towns in West Virginia who have been specifically targeted by Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and who have <clears throat> basically had the consequences of the opioid epidemic being dumped in their state. So thank you so much for watching. We'll be back with another interview coming up. And we have a couple more people that we want to talk to about this whole Purdue Pharma Sackler family issue. So we're not done with that story. And if you haven't watched Dope Sick, please watch it. It will open your eyes and you will be aware of things that you maybe weren't before. We'll be back again next week. If you or someone you know needs to get into treatment, please, please do it. And um, remember that we uh, talk in the, in the middle of the podcast. Bobby Newman has an ad. He can help if you need help with intervention. We'll talk to you again. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.